Good morning everyone, this is Rob Behrens here welcoming you to Radio Ombudsman and uh, welcome to all our listeners uh, growing all over the world and thank you for your excellent feedback. Uh, I said that we were having some stellar guests coming and today I'm very pleased to be able to confirm that by welcoming the European Ombudsman uh, Emily O'Reilly. Emily, you're extremely welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, most of you will know that uh, Emily is a polymath. She has succeeded in everything that she's done. She's been uh, a, a very successful journalist. She's been an author. Uh, she's been a national ombudsman. And now she's the European ombudsman. So we're very lucky to have you. Uh, thank you for, for coming on. It's the tradition on this program, Emily, for my guests to say a little bit about where they were born and brought up and what values they, they brought with them. Well, first of all, thank you very much. It's a great honour for me to be in, in, invited onto Radio Ombudsman and, and, and thank you. I was born in the middle of Ireland in a small town called uh, Tullamore uh, and I lived there until I was seven and my father in his work was transferred to Dublin and so I lived there. I've lived there uh, all of my life. Uh, I was in school in Dublin, in university uh, in Dublin, and uh, after that, after a brief period abroad, I became uh, a journalist. And I suppose this really stemmed from a great curiosity that I had as a child. I'd read everything. My father was very interested in, in, in politics, and uh, any election that was on, I, I would follow, whether it was British or American, Irish elections, and so on. So I became very interested in that. I was very curious as a child and, and eventually after college, uh, even though I had done languages and, and, and literature in college, when I reflected back on, on what it was that really motivated me, the interests I had, the people I was attracted to, I realised it was pointing in one particular direction and, and that was journalism. So I was lucky in, in those days, which would have been the early 1980s, it wasn't strictly necessary to have a degree in journalism. Very few people actually had degrees or diplomas in journalism. People came in from different walks in life. So I got an apprenticeship uh, on, on a small magazine and then pretty shortly afterwards I became a grandly titled education correspondent for a Sunday newspaper and that, uh, that was the start of a fantastic 20 years in journalism. But I think the interest went back to childhood, to my father's particular interest in politics and current affairs and to, I think, just my natural curiosity as an individual. So you're obviously very successful as a journalist. You were Journalist of the Year and Woman Journalist of the Year. Did you enjoy it? I can honestly say I loved every moment of it uh, in the sense that I, they often say if you, if you find something that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And, and that was how I considered my, my, uh, my, my job. I remember I used to be, certainly in the early days, if it was a bank holiday and I couldn't work, I'd, I'd, I'd be upset. It was just, it was just wonderful to be, to be a part of uh, everything that was happening. And of course, during the, the 80s and 90s, uh, the troubles, as we call them, in, in Ireland were still uh, ongoing in Northern Ireland. So I was based in Belfast for uh, a number of years during the height of the troubles. And when I, I look back now, especially when we we're commemorating the Good Friday Agreement and so on, to think that you know I was there, it was being a part of history. Uh, at the time, you think, no, you're just getting up and this, this, this week my assignment is Belfast or my assignment is that. And then when you reflect back, you see as well, without being too pious about it, what an incredible privilege it was to have been, to have been part of that. And I suppose later when I 
became when I was married and, and became a parent and quite a few children and I suppose journalism gave me that flexibility as well and that I could work um, to a certain extent to my own design. My editors tended not to care where or, or when I worked or even how I worked as long as I delivered copies. So in that sense it enabled me to have that career both as, as, as a journalist and later as ombudsman and as a mother of quite a large family as well. So what was it that caused you to cease to be a journalist and become the National Ombudsman for well, Ireland? I've been in journalism for about 20 years. I was very happy there. I was working actually in the Sunday Times at the time, the Irish edition of, yeah. of, of the Sunday Times. And um, I was approached literally by the government, by the Finance and Public Service Minister at the time. Uh, he told me that my predecessor, the, the late Kevin Murphy, was about to stand down and would I be interested in, in, in the role. Uh, now, it took me a long time to consider whether I would be or not because I love journalism. I didn't see myself getting out of writing as such mm. at all. It was, it was the only thing I was good at as well. Um, it was my particular skill and it was my passion. But the role wasn't just that of ombudsman, it was also that of information commissioner. Yes. So I was the appeals body for uh, freedom of information requests. This would have been a few years before the, the British um, FOI regime uh, came into play. I would also be a member of the Standards and Public Office Commission, beyond the Referendum Commission, so it was a multifaceted job. So in the end I, I said yes um, and uh, Parliament uh, supported me overwhelmingly, uh, which was great because it gave that great legitimacy to, to my appointment and, uh, and so I began. And I suppose people did tend to say to me, was I, was I sort of poacher turned gamekeeper? And mm. I said, no, because in fact I was in, as ombudsman, the exact same space as I was as a journalist between the people and the state, yeah. you know, mediating both and being independent um, in, in, in terms of, uh, in, in both my roles. But what, was there a difference? I mean, did you have to use your discretion more as an ombudsman well, than yes. as a I journalist? Well, yes. Well, you put your finger on it. I mean, it, this was, uh, I had to keep my mouth shut really a bit more <laughs> would probably be a, be a better way of, of putting it. But I still I still found ways. I remember when, when I actually left the job to become European ombudsman, I, I said I wasn't going to park the first 20 years of my professional life uh, at the gate when I became Irish ombudsman. I, mean, I felt I had, uh, whatever I had to contribute, it was partly the way I used words, partly the way I, I thought about things, partly the way I conceptualised things. I remember quite early on, um, I would have been an ombudsman about a year, a year and a half, and I was asked to take part at a particular conference in, in County Clare in the west of Ireland, and it was about values and citizenship and, and all of that. And at that time, we were in an economic boom, Celtic Tiger, but while it was wonderful for everybody to see the economy so uplifted and to see nearly full employment and all of that, and an end to certain extent to emigration, which had been the lot of the Irish for so many centuries, really. There were certain concerns that society was changing, you know, becoming more secular, becoming more materialistic, the usual mm. things that happen, I suppose, when, when a country almost overnight becomes rich, relatively. And at the time, my children were going out of early childhood and into adolescence, and I suppose I was, I was reflecting on the society that, that they were about to enter into it. And I suppose that, so I, I sat down and I spent a few days writing this piece. and. I suppose timing is everything. Um, it was, I think, it was a it was a good speech. It brought together a lot of my thinking, and I did quite a lot of research in terms of thinkers or I suppose public philosophers that that I I would have admired, and um, it created quite an impression at the time. Uh, but I remember 
some people in my office were a little bit critical uh, of me, uh, probably to my face, but also arguably behind my back when I left the room, because they were a little bit concerned, and understandably so, because, you know, they, they had the office's best interests at heart as well, that perhaps I was stepping a little bit outside my, my remit, my mandate. I didn't uh, think that I was. I wasn't critiquing any particular policy choice by, by governments. In fact, I was praising the fact that uh, at the time, as we saw what good policy choices had been made that enabled what happened to happen. Uh, there might be a different evaluation now. Um, but rather, it was, it was you know, looking at society from the vantage point of, of a mother and a parent who was deeply involved in the health system, the education system and, and all of that, mm. from my experience as an, as an ombudsman and also, even though brief as it was, but from my experience as, as a journalist. Uh, and um, that was a way that I found of being able to still have that kind of journalistic piece in, in terms of being able to write and express myself while still maintaining within the lines of, of, uh, of my work as an ombudsman. This is what the uh, Canadian ombudsman Nora Farrell calls uh, structural impartiality. Uh-huh, it's, okay. the, it's the <laughs> idea that you can't be an effective ombudsman unless you live the experience of the people who are going to come to you. And that is relatively new in, in Europe, and, and yet you, you manifested it long before it became fashionable. Well, thank you. It, it is an interesting way of looking at it. I remember as well uh, one of our, our, our former colleagues, uh, Alice Brown, who'd been the, the Scottish Public Service, yep. uh, Services Ombudsman, and I remember she said one time, live it, don't laminate it. And I thought that was, that was a brilliant uh, mantra for, for all of us. Now, I think I think we all have to remember that as almost when we're, we're privileged people as well, we're generally middle class, we tend to be well educated. So in terms of that real experiential thing, we, mm. we cannot feel what mm. uh, people who are mar- in marginalised communities feel. Uh, but at the same time, I think we have to at least have that imaginative impulse yeah. that allows us to do that. And I think that when we are um, when we are explaining our cases, and I know you have done this very recently in relation to the work you have been doing, I think it has to be what the children in the classroom calls show and tell. Yeah. Allow people to tell their experiences and, and for us uh, to mediate it through an actual experience um, as well. That is very important because I have found that people are stressed by all sorts of situations and sometimes you and I as ombudsman can't help them. Sometimes their local authority can't help them or whatever and they're going to go through a, a difficult experience. But it is made far less difficult if they feel they have been able to talk to somebody. Yeah. If they feel that somebody has heard them as an individual, not as case number A, B, C or D, and you have a sheet in front of you and this is the protocol and this is what you say, people sense that. Yeah. And it is deeply upsetting for them. If you hear them, literally, and, and, and in the way of really under, trying to understand what they're feeling, the stress levels go down. And even if they walk away without their mission accomplished, they are felt that their dignity has been respected and they feel empowered by that and heard. And, you know, uh, they've been given solace because of that. I remember uh, Anne Abraham said to me that when she first joined the Parliamentary Ombudsman's Office, the job descriptions said that people uh, might enjoy the job if they'd been a librarian. 
<laughs> and that's no offence to librarians, but yeah. we've moved on from that and we have to be able to communicate effectively with people who quite often have been traumatised or bereaved in a way which makes the conversation very difficult. Yes, and, and there's another sort of practical part of it as well. As we know, the, the, the media likes stories and likes telling stories. And, and if you, if we as ombudsmen, have, have, have good stories to tell, yeah. then the chances are they, they are more likely to be mediated. More people will hear about us. Uh, and and that, that people who may not have known that we can at least attempt to help them uh, will be more encouraged to come to our office to seek help. So Emily, how long were you the Irish Ombudsman for? Uh, I was the Irish Ombudsman for, uh, for 10 years from 2003 until 2013. That's a long time. It is a long time. It tends to go by in a blink. I always think when you have a, a particular tranche of time, uh, you know, a particular period of time for your, for your contract or for your mandate, I think your life goes faster. Yeah. As, as soon as you hear you've got a mandate for five years, you automatically add five years onto your life. It seems <laughs> to whiz by. Whereas in, in, in journalism, it tended to go just from week to week, story to story. So it wasn't that. But yeah, it was uh, yeah, 10 years. Um, and... I think certainly towards the end, I managed to accomplish a lot of the the bigger pieces. The Freedom of Information Act, for example, had been severely restricted just before I became Information Commissioner, and uh, it took a while uh, for events and people like myself, offices like my office, to convince the government to to change that. We also managed to have the um, Ombudsman Act uh, amended to reflect more properly the public administration of of 2013 Mm -hmm. rather than um, 1983 when the office was was created. So a lot of those big blocks uh, were completed or close to completion by by the time I left. I think you also got universities towards the end. Yeah, yes, right? universities, and uh, a big thing for the um, information commissioner, um, the, the police came under uh, our mandate. The, the police, or the Gardaí, as we call them in Ireland, had always yeah. strongly resisted that uh, yeah. that transparency and that accountability. We also got a lot of agencies, uh, including some of the big financial agencies that have been set up in the wake of the financial crisis, so, so that was very important. Okay, so then you became the European Ombudsman or Ombudswoman, and I'll ask you about the gender elements of that. But, I mean, that's a whole different kettle of fish. I mean, for those who don't know, you have to be elected. You have to be elected, and that was certainly a different kettle of fish. It was probably the most stressful thing I I ever went through in my life. Uh, I'd, I'd been working in, the, in election mode for about a week when I thought, well, hats off to any politician who does this more than once because it is incredibly stressful. The way it works is it's probably the only office in the within the European institutions that is directly elected as such by, by the parliament. Yes. Nobody else has any hand actor part in it. So, for example, if, uh, if the commissioners, the auditors who form the Court of Auditor, the judges who form the European uh, Court of Justice, they're all government nominees, so your government or my government puts forward candidates. And while while there is a vetting process, essentially, unless they're complete idiots, they're, uh, they're, they, they tend to be appointed. But with the Ombudsman, it's different. I was not an appointee of, of my government. I went mm-hmm. forward purely on the basis of, you know, I'm the Irish Ombudsman and I'm going forward. Um, and, and that was it. And then uh, they, it's in two steps. The first step is that you have to get the signatures of um, 40 MEPs, which given that there are over 700 MEPs, doesn't seem like a, a hard job. But when you're an independent and 
and unknown. And when you're up against, as I was in my case, two very long-standing MEPs from the two big political blocks uh, in the in the European Parliament, that would be the, the centre-right, the European People's Party, mm-hmm. and then the centre-left, which would be uh, the, the Social Democrats. That was very difficult because they could simply send the, the list down the, down the table and get their colleagues to sign up, whereas I had to work pretty hard for that but while it was hard at the time I didn't regret it because it was it was a great learning curve for me I had to go in and I probably met maybe about a hundred MEPs over over the course of the campaign so you go into their office they might be from Bulgaria they might be from the UK France Slovenia anywhere and you learned a bit about their lives Uh, you learned a bit about their politics. Sometimes you'd go in and, and the TV from home would be on because when they say, oh, such and such an event is happening, you yeah. talk about that. So it was a great learning curve in terms of that cultural piece about the union as opposed to the, the political piece yeah. uh, about the union. So anyway, once I got the, the, the signatures, then there was a vote in the European Parliament in Strasbourg. So I tied with the uh, candidate from the EPP and then the second and third round of votings, anyway, at the third round of votings, I, I won. The Social Democrat candidate uh, was, was voted out and the Social Democrats uh, supported me, along with the, the other parties, the Liberals, Aldi and, and other, other groupings. It must have helped having been a journalist and an ombudsman, having that on your CV. Uh, it, it did, yes. I mean, I think I, I had no doubt that I was a good candidate um, and I actually had no doubt. I, was probably, I remember you used to say to people, it was probably the first job that I went into that I was pretty certain I could do a good job mm. uh, because I had amassed that amount of experience as a journalist, as an ombudsman for, for 10 years and I was, I think I was 55 at the time. So, you know, I, I'd, I'd life experience as well. I also had a very good overview and sense of the office because um, my predecessor, Nicky Forsey Amandouris, as European Ombudsman, he chaired the network of member state ombudsmen and, and those uh, candidate countries and so on. And so I had uh, been part of that network and, and was, was very aware of the office, would read its annual reports, mm. uh, just out of normal professional interest every year. So I had a good idea of the good points about the office, but also how I could make improvements. But when you're in the political, when, you, when you're in a political uh, arena, what to, to me was stressful, if, if you're going for a job, generally it's behind closed doors, you go forward, you put your CV, you do an interview and that's it. This is very open. Yeah. Um, and also, you, you you didn't know what was happening, whether there were deals being made, you know, uh, in in the corridors, whether there were trade-offs being made. You you didn't know, so there was a great sense of uncertainty about it, which was the main reason why I considered afterwards politicians to be incredibly brave people uh, that that they go forward because it's not necessarily merit that that brings you through sometimes I, I do hope in my case it was well but, I'm sure it was but it let me put two things to you I mean ombudsmen struggle with appointment and legitimacy across uh, the world not everyone is appointed on merit very few ombudsmen are actually elected as, as you are so it g- gave you and gives you a legitimacy that other people don't have which is plus factor but would you accept that it creates a risk of the successful candidate needing to be a populist close to the people who elected her or him um well i i think an ombudsman stands or falls by their independence and by the view of them not being whatever about working in a political arena because we all work in a political arena i mean if if, if you were to get involved in in the Windrush affair at the moment. You know, you would be stepping into a political. We'll, area, we'll come on to you know, that. But um, but 
you know, if you go back to my appointment as, as Irish Ombudswoman, my predecessors, and it, it's still the, the case now with, with marginal difference, were selected by, by the government. Somebody yeah. looked for somebody who was seen to be independent, have a profile, and all of that. So there, there wasn't that competitive process at that level. What gave me the particular legitimacy at Irish Ombudsman was that even though I was appointed by or nominated by a government of a particular stripe, every single person in Parliament supported me yeah. right across the board. And that to me was, was very, very important. Yes. And then I was finally appointed by the President. So, all right, this was a process in which there were political candidates uh, running. But the way I have done my work, uh, as I did in Ireland, was to seek the widest possible consensus yeah. for what I do. And once something becomes a partisan issue and the ombudsman is seen to be partisan, then that is end game, uh, as far as I can see. Well, not as far as I can see, it is, it is end game. Um, so all of the work that I do, I'm very careful in terms of um, any political engagements I, I might go to that has made clear what, what my role is in terms of engagement with individual MEPs or parliamentary committees I always strive to you know just give my views as I see them as affected by my mandate by the law uh, and by uh, codes of conduct and by the principles of good administration and that and after that whatever happens happens it's difficult for all of us as ombudsmen to make a direct connection with citizens. In my case, there's still an MP filter for mm. parliamentary complaints, mm. so you have to go through your MP. In your case, it's even more complicated because the European Union in Brussels, Strasbourg, is a long way from citizens of the European Union. Mm. How do you address that? Well, you, you put your finger on the problem. Obviously, whatever about the difficulties in, in, a, in, a, in a member state, particularly in a small member state like Ireland, most people would tend to know the ombudsman. Uh, d different in, in, in the UK, obviously, a much, bigger, a much bigger and wider constituency and different ombudsmen, obviously. Um, so, so there are challenges there. But it's very, very difficult in the EU. I mean, most citizens and most of the member states would have very little awareness even of the big institutions mm. and what they do, let alone a small body like the ombudsman. Now, I was very aware of that, obviously, when I became European Ombudsman, so my strategy was to try and effect good administrative change for citizens as widely as possible throughout the Union, even if none of them ever knew me or ever needed to, to know me. So that to that end, I've used strategically my power of own initiative. So I deal with the complaints that come to me, whether from citizens, civil society, businesses, whatever, who have a complaint against one of the European institutions, agencies or bodies. But I also over the last number of years have pursued a number of strategic systemic investigations yeah. so that if um, the results of my work has been that trade negotiations become more transparent in terms of records that are released um, the people who advise or the committees expert groups that advise the Commission on very important regulations that affect um, all of us if there's more transparency around them any of those issues that I do will have an impact on people who could spend the rest of their lives happily not knowing about the European Ombudsman. And my strategy as well was also to do issues of public interest that attracted the attention of significant media influencers, to use terrible jargon, <laughs> in the member states, yeah. not just in the Brussels bubble. So my work has been mediated in some of the big German newspapers in, in France, you know, in many countries around, around the EU. And as a result of that, 
we've had an increase in complaints. So that's been the strategic working out of, of, of the plan. Okay, well, you've got what I want. Okay, you've got the power of own investigation. Now, uh, if we have ombudsman reform in the UK, which I hope is coming along the line, we must have or we should have that power. Could you explain to our listeners why it's so important to have that? I believe it's, it's, it's critically important uh, for an ombudsman. I think without it, um, one is to a certain extent constrained in relation to what you can do because the work you do is informed, I say only, but obviously it's a huge part of our work, by the complaints that you get. And in the case of the UK, there's the, the filter. I know there, there are ways in which that doesn't have to be the barrier yeah. that it might appear to be on paper. I, under, yeah. I understand that. But then if, you, if you're if you an ombudsman and you're an engaged ombudsman and we're speaking about being engaged with issues that really matter to the citizens and you become aware of an issue that you think you could usefully deal with, there's some systemic issue in some government department or a local authority or a hospital trust or whatever, but you haven't had a direct complaint about it. It's in the ether. There might be chatter about it on, on in media or you might be aware anecdotally of cases. Without the power of own initiative, you can't say, OK, well, I'm going to look at this, I'm going to grab it by the scruff of the neck, I'm going to do a, a systemic uh, complaint into that. And some of our biggest successes have come through that. You One inquiry and it solves the problem for so many people. I mean, for example, when the so-called TTIP negotiations, these are the trade negotiations between the EU and the US were started a few years ago, they're stalled now while President Trump decides what to do with it. We knew in the ether that lots of people had concerns that they weren't transparent, that you know all sorts of bad things were going to happen to the environment and so on. So I thought, right, that is ripe for an own initiative investigation. Mm. And we did that. And as a result, not just by, through me, but through parliamentary pressure and pressure from other member state parliaments and so on, we really created a transformation in the way that the relevant directorate uh, conducted trade negotiations. But without my power of own initiative, I would not have been able to have been as successful as I have been, not in every investigation I've done, but but in a number of key ones that I've done. Without that, I wouldn't have been able to raise the visibility of the office to the point where we are seeing a significant rise in complaints, many of which have a significant public interest element to them. I'll be using that in submissions that I I'd make be delighted to, uh, if you would. It's very to, important to Parliament. So thank you for that free advice. I think it's important. You mentioned the Windrush affair. We now know that the government was given uh, warnings about this in 2016. And had we had own initiative powers, there is a case for saying that we might have looked at that in advance of uh, the individual complaints which might eventually come to us. Now, we'll look at those on their merits and without prejudging it. But if we'd had the own initiative power, with one investigation, we might have been able to curtail what has been uh, a pretty miserable story for a lot of good people. Yes, I've been following this with great interest because on so many levels um, in relation to administration, the politics, obviously, and to a certain extent, it's feeding into the Brexit debate because people are talking about, well, if this is how you allegedly treated those people, how can we trust that you will treat EU citizens in the future in, in a good way and so on? And it's uh, on the human interest level as well. Some of the stories have been particularly harrowing. And I was thinking exactly the same thing that you were thinking, especially when I, I heard some exchange 
in, in the House of Parliament uh, the other day when what happened was described as, as an act of, of gross maladministration. And I thought, well, that's our territory. Mm. And I, I thought precisely that it, it is an issue that fits exactly into the mandate of, of, of an ombudsman and also what people would expect of an ombudsman's office. So I think you're right. Had you developed an awareness without necessarily getting particular complaints about it a few years ago, obviously your office at the Parable Initiative would have been able to tackle it. Can I return to the question of the political role of Ombudsman? And let me put this to you. Has there ever been a sense of frustration on your part that UK Ombudsmen have been reluctant to express a view about Brexit for you? <laughs> How much trouble do you want me to, to get me into? <laughs> or yourself into? Um, it's very interesting you should actually say that this, this week because just the other day, two of my colleagues met with people from the Brexit task force uh, in, in Brussels. And we've been approaching it from the standpoint of the citizens, citizens' rights, knowing what their rights are, but also from the transparency of the negotiations. And in fact, I, I met with the, the information commissioner yeah. um, last year, I think, for the word to go out that if people can't get uh, records under FOI law here, that there's a possibility if they're held by an EU institution that they can they can go there. But the message that came back from the Brexit task force was, to me, and would I talk to my colleagues in the UK precisely about that point, about citizens' rights, uh, concerns over what might happen, over the registration issue, for example, uh, at the moment. And um, I haven't formally responded, but, but I will be suggesting that we all get together, uh, either, in, uh, either in Brussels or here, and, and we have a conversation about it. As to whether Ombudsman, I, I haven't heard that much, which isn't to say that Ombudsman haven't been, been speaking out, but it's about citizens. Yeah. And I would have thought it, it, it is critical to your work now. At the same time, I suppose we're still in a sort of a, a limbo situation. So, so much is still uncertain and nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Yeah. So what do you actually realistically start to work on? But I think it would be good if connections started to be made, perhaps with authorities in, in Brussels, and that relationships develop so that when things get a little a little more challenging, um, that, that links will, will be there to enable the Ombudsman to uh, to speak. Now, I am fully aware of how contested this issue is at every level and also it's people people in Brussels feel you know, mixed views about it. Sadness really would be probably be the overwhelming one. But I think the Parliament's big piece in particular is around citizens yes. and the treatment of citizens. That's coming across very strongly. <clears throat> and therefore, I think if, if it is uh, the wish of, of the UK Ombudsman to engage with that, then I think you would find a, you know, a, an open door over there and, and a welcome for your views. That's a very um, generous uh, response, thank you. I mean, I, I think from the UK perspective, the dilemma for us is that to express a view about such a sensitive political issue before it was resolved or has been resolved, to us, and we talked about it amongst ourselves, my colleagues and I, put us dangerously near the political dimension of things. But once there is resolution about what has been agreed, then our responsibility is to make sure that people get what they are promised. And we will be working closely with our European colleagues to make sure that happens. Yeah. Well, well, that that is good because there are so many people who are going to be affected by this. And again, it goes back to stress 
uncertainty is a huge stress on people. Yes. And I imagine there are so many people now, whether they're EU citizens living here or UK citizens living in the EU, who are really stressed, who can't make decisions. Uh, they're not big corporates who can just pack up and, and, and go uh, very quickly. They're, they're people who are planning careers, planning families, planning futures for their families, for themselves, and, and who don't know. So I think obviously the quicker the whole thing is resolved, the better, and then the quicker that ombudsman can start really engaging in it, because the work of ombudsman would be vital to that. As we wrap up, can I ask you a couple of final questions? You've had a distinguished career. You've made a difference in every job that you've done. What advice would you give to a young graduate who works in my office about the possibilities of a career as an ombudsman? Well, I think I think there, there. I think it's it's an institution, as you know, that has significantly expanded over over the last uh, few decades, and I hear constantly now we need an ombudsman for this we need an ombudsman for that I think it's it's important to be clear about what it is and and, and what it isn't um, you're, you're not an advocate as such but I think there are significant opportunities for people who want to make careers in in this world but I would urge them not to be narrow in terms of their focus mm -hmm. uh, don't be narrowly focused on the law yeah and don't be narrowly focused on librarianship really be engaged in the wide stuff of the world. Read as widely as you can, because everything an ombudsman touches in their work touches on every aspect uh, of, of our lives. And to me, the colleagues that have always been the best in my office haven't necessarily been the ones with the, with the stellar degrees, but they're the ones who really engage with life, uh, with the world, with current affairs, with politics, with all of the issues that, uh, that, that, that come across your desk. And they're the ones who are really going to not just make a great career for themselves in, in this world, but who are really going to enjoy it as well. Okay, thank you. Uh, so my last question is this. Uh, I'm aware that you're not finished. Your career is still developing and we're going to watch it with fascination and interest. But what uh, so far, do you think you want to be most remembered for? I, I think, um, I, I know it sounds like a cliche, but it is making a difference. I mean, I, I felt safe to leave my, my job as uh, ombudsman in Ireland because I had managed after many years to put in the two big important building blocks that were needed to transform the office at that point, making the, the bringing the, the ombudsman's office into the 21st century. Uh, and also revising the, the freedom or persuading with help, of course, and with other uh, pressure groups to, uh, to to bring freedom of information back to, 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 to the high standard that it had had. In the European Ombudsman's Office, uh, I think I have hopefully managed to make it relevant. I think certainly its visibility has increased. I can see the impact that it is having. And if you forgive me, given what we've talked about, independence and, and politics and so on, I think the work that we do has been part of the political debate mm -hmm. in the sense that people are now looking to see what is the ombudsman view on this, that or the other. Not necessarily political issues, yeah. but issues that obviously are part of the, the political hinterland in which we do. So that to me is, is important, that you haven't just gone in every day, gone through the caseload, whatever, but that there is visible, tangible change and transformation when, when you've left the job. So you've used your imagination to, to do the best that you can, so. which has been remarkable. Yeah. 
Uh, Emily O'Reilly, thank you very much indeed for being with us. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honour. Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We'd love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comments. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe for future editions.